HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. The redoubtable Marion Nessel is the closest I can come to a modern-day Joan of Arc, rallying us for decades against private and public institutional forces as she advocates for good food, sensible nutrition, and responsible public health. Author of 14 seminal books and hundreds of research papers, op-eds, and collaborations, Marion Nessel founded NYU's Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, where she trained and most importantly, inspired an army of scholars and activists. A most respected watchdog of our corporate food culture, she can be counted on to tell the unvarnished and occasionally unsavory truth about food and health, corporate food business, and the politics behind it all. Occasionally controversial, but always right on target, Marion Nestle is the first call for journalists when they need a reliable, smart explanation of anything having to do with nutrition, food, or health. She says, I get into trouble a lot because I say what I think. We are thrilled to have Marion Nestle on our show today. How did it begin for you that food and nutrition became a focus? Well, I don't know how far back you want to go. Like growing up in your household. I discovered fairly early on that I loved food. And, uh, you know, I had an epiphany. I was at a summer camp in Vermont, and the woman who ran it was a fantastic cook. She had lived in China for many, many years and learned to cook Chinese, but really good Chinese food. And there was a huge vegetable garden in the farm that the camp was on. And if you were a good camper, you got to go pick the vegetables for dinner. Um, and I remember going out, it was my turn, and I picked string beans. And I picked one off and I bit into it. It was July. It was hot from the sun. It was sweet. It was crisp. It was delicious. I had no idea that vegetables tasted that way. 
you know, I'd grown up on canned vegetables, post-World War in New York. I just had no idea. And that's really what started it. I would have studied it if I could have figured out how when I went to Berkeley to college, but the choices were agriculture, and I was a city girl, I didn't get agriculture at all, or dietetics. And I went to Berkeley as a dietetics major. But I lasted about a day because the (laughs) classes were so much like home economics. I didn't think they were very challenging. And I was taking a five-credit chemistry class along with everybody else who was a pre-med or a science major. And that seemed challenging and therefore more worth studying. And I didn't get back to food until I had graduated from college, was on my first teaching job, and was handed a nutrition class to teach. It was like falling in love, and I've never looked back. Huh. I've never heard a story quite like that before, That certainly not at summer camp in Vermont. And you must have known that you had a heightened palate at that point. Did you? Well, I didn't because I didn't. I mean, I, I had friends who were foodies pretty early on before the term was coined. I mean, but they were classic foodies. They thought about food all the time. They obsessed about food. They were willing to go to the most extraordinary lengths to get the best ingredients. I was living in the Bay Area at the time. Then when Julia Child's book came out, We all were doing competitive home cooking. Everybody was cooking out of Julia Child's book and trying to one-up the next person at dinner parties. I didn't like the competition, but I liked the food. (laughs) And then I went on, I got my doctorate in molecular biology because I thought that science was really important, and I liked it. And then I got a teaching job at Brandeis, teaching cell and molecular biology, At the time, the Brandeis Biology Department had a rule that you could only teach the same class three times in a row, and then you had to switch to something else. That was rule number one. Rule number two was you had to teach anything that the department needed, whether you knew anything about it or not, um, because the assumption was that you had a doctorate, you could learn a subject ahead of undergraduate students. And the students were clamoring for human biology classes. I was offered a choice of physiology or nutrition. I was really interested in nutrition, so I picked that one. Um, And I had a fabulous class. I had, I remember 50 students who were really, really interested and sort of learned it along with me and wrote fantastic term papers that were the basis of everything I have done ever since. Um, It was a really great experience. I only taught it twice. And then I moved to San Francisco and worked at UC San Francisco and taught nutrition to medical students for about 10 years and then went on. (laughs) Well, I I want to ask you about teaching nutrition to medical students because we know that that, that's considered to be one of the the big lacunas in medical education that doctors Mm -hmm. don't understand about food. What was that experience like? Well, the students were wonderful. Um, I mean, I really loved teaching them, and they were really interested. Certainly, if they had any patient contact at all, their patients were asking them questions about nutrition all the time. And I ran the first-year biochemistry class for a number of years and had a certain number of hours of nutrition where I had five or six hours or something like that, where I could teach nutrition to medical students. And I tried to tailor the classes to the kinds of questions 
that their patients were asking. But it's not something that medical school is set up to teach because, first of all, there are no national board questions on nutrition. And even though, you know, I mean, at this point, three quarters of the American population is overweight or has obesity, um, nothing about that is really taught. It's only two thirds of the people on this call. (laughs) Right. Well, I don't know about that. But everybody is overweight and everybody is worried about it for good reason. And medical students aren't taught anything about it. They have no time. The primary care physician that I see has exactly 15 minutes to spend with me. If we want to get into what my particular problems are about diet, that's not an opportunity to do that. The system is set up in a way where there's not nearly enough time to deal with nutrition issues. And nutrition is very, very complicated because everybody's diet is different. Everybody's genetics is different. Everybody's lifestyle is different. And the combination of genetics, lifestyle, and diet are um, you have to know a lot about it in order to work from where people are in order to help them change their diet to something that's healthier. It's just out of the question to expect the medical profession to do anything about it. There are some medical schools that are working on it, but really nothing has changed since I taught at UCSF in the 1970s and early 1980s. Nothing has changed. And that was already 20 years after the people were complaining that there wasn't enough nutrition in medical school. It's an intractable situation until we have a healthcare system that's focused on prevention. Academic science, two medical students, and how did you find your way from that to all of the the policy pursuits that you went into? Basically, I got fired. I don't change it. (laughs) Basically, I had an appointment as an associate dean in the medical school, mainly because I was a trailing wife. I was part of my husband's recruitment to the medical school. And when the dean who had hired me into that job took another position at the medical school and became head of the whole campus, the dean who succeeded him essentially squeezed me out. I didn't know I was supposed to resign. It was a political appointment, and I didn't really understand that. Uh, And nobody explained it to me. And I didn't want to hear it if anybody did, I guess. So I lost my job, and I was going to have to leave. I negotiated my way out of that. And I had a couple of years of salary support to try to get my life together. And I went to public health school. And that was just a wonderful thing to do. I was advised to do it. It was really, it was good. I followed that advice. And on the basis of having gone to public health school and having published a book about nutrition in medical practice, which I called Nutrition in Clinical Practice, that was my first book. It was published in 1985. And that got me a job in the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in Washington, D.C. as a senior nutrition policy advisor. My job there was to produce the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health, which came out in 1988. That's what I did for two years in Washington. I wrote a book, basically. The same person at UCSF who advised me to go to public health school 
knew the person in Washington and knew he was looking for somebody to do a big job. And I was actually the perfect person for that job because I had just published a book on nutrition for medical students. And the same material was covered in the Surgeon General's report. And I could plagiarize from my book in that (laughs) report, which I did. (laughs) And I mean, other people were writing the chapters, but I had to rewrite all of them, basically. So I was very well prepared for producing a report on nutrition and everything came out and it had policy recommendations in it. And so that was my first experience with getting involved in policy and it was the right place to be for the, for somebody who was interested in policy. And I like to say about my experience with Washington was that I learned things I didn't even know I didn't know. I mean, it was really an education. And then on the basis of that, I got the job at NYU. I fled back to the university. I was not suited for Washington because I say what I think, and I'm not very political about that. And so my partisanship was very obvious and got me into trouble all the time. Well, I'm grateful for your partisanship. It feels to me, listening to your story, that the time in Washington gave you a sense, oh, this is a national issue. I can speak nationally. I am not teaching one-on-one. I can have far greater impact than I thought I might have. Well, I don't think I thought about it consciously, but it was clearly where I was headed. I wanted to get back into a university as quickly as possible because, as I said, I was in trouble all the time. And the I, mean, I was always saying something where some secretary, some cabinet-level person would complain to my boss about what I had said. I'm really in trouble all the time. So I fled back to the university. NYU offered me, a, I considered it an absolute miracle. I was offered a tenured full professorship at NYU. Right off the bat, right off the bat. Right. I was hired as a full professor with tenure at NYU two years after being fired as a lecturer at UCSF. So that that Washington experience was critically important in getting me that job. But I went to NYU as the chair of a department of home economics. (laughs) They were desperate to find somebody to chair the department. And I was there at just the right time. Um, so it was and it when was, you first went there, it was called the Department of Home Economics. NYU was an interesting place in those days. It's gotten a lot better since. So I was hired with, as a full professor with tenure and into a department that was very much in the last century, if not the one before. And I was very worried about it. I just didn't know whether I would be able to do with the department what needed to be done. But the job had security, and I had never had job security or any other kind. Were you still married through this? Oh, no, there were no, I was divorced, and the divorce came, and that was a second divorce, came right in the middle of the time I was leaving UCSF, Hmm. a very bad period in my life. So, for the first time, I had real job security. I had a platform. I mean, there are people who get tenure and never do another thing in their lives. For me, tenure was a door opener. I had a platform, a a respectable platform from which to speak. And I was free to speak. I was free to write about what I wanted to do. And I had figured out that Publisher Parish was no joke. I needed to publish like mad. 
And I immediately started writing articles about everything I was doing. And eventually those led to my book, Food Politics. It took a while. But once Food Politics came out, everything changed. So and that came out in 2002. So I, I had been at NYU for 14 years by then. When you say everything changed, make that a little concrete for me. Well, you know, up until then, I had difficulty getting things published. I mean, basically, my publication record is heavily referenced editorials. I mean, they're opinion pieces with a lot of references attached <laughs> to them um, based on the research that I've done. But they're opinion pieces. They're not research articles. And I could do that at NYU because NYU values things like books. It has lots of humanities and social sciences departments. And so it wasn't like being in a medical school or being in an academic science department where the only thing that counts is basic biomedical research. Mm -hmm. um, so the kinds of things that I did published in scholarly journals, were considered scholarly at NYU. I mean, it was the perfect place for me. I mean, I don't think I could have gotten tenure anywhere else at, well, at you, that you moment. Well, you made it a perfect place for you, it seems like. Well, I yeah. did yeah. because <laughs> in the mid-1990s, um, this series of events occurred that allowed our department to create the field of food studies that was the field that I would have gone into if it had existed when I went to college. And so we created at, at NYU the field that we all wished we were in. Um, and we were not exactly the first to do that. There was a gastronomy program at Boston University that preceded us. But I didn't think gastronomy would work at NYU. Uh, that was the wrong title. Um, and NYU had lots and lots of programs ending with the word studies, French studies, American studies, Africana studies, women's studies. I mean, all of those kinds of things. Food studies fit. We were able to do that because the department had a hotel program that was taken away from us and moved into another school. Everybody was really sorry for us for having this lucrative program removed. We went from concept to state approval in under a year which is astonishing for a university. We had a class um, the first year because the New York Times wrote about it. The other thing that I would say is that one of the things I learned in Washington was the power of the press. And when we come back, Marian Nessel will tell us how she became the go-to person for media on food, nutrition, and public health issues. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. 
And we are back with Marion Nessel. One of the things I learned in Washington was the power of the press. I very much wanted to be someone that the press called for commentary or quotations or discussions about whatever they were writing about. And that happened pretty early on in my tenure at NYU when the Department of Agriculture withdrew the pyramid in 1991 under pressure from the meat industry. I was right in the middle of that. I had a deep throat at the Department of Agriculture who sent me documents. It was wonderful. It was like living in a, in a mystery story. It was so much fun. Um, and I just passed this stuff along to the press. I just loved it. And as a result of that, by the end of that year, when the pyramid finally came out, I knew a lot of reporters by then. Wow. And, and have talked to them. And I, I work a lot with reporters. I want them to get their stories the way I want them to see the story. And I have a really good relationship with a lot of reporters. You have a reputation among people who write about food as being enormously accessible and also very willing to start at the beginning, not to, right. assume, not to be offended by someone else's lack of information. No, as long as the questions are genuine, I'm happy to answer them. I think the press has an enormous influence in this society, and I like the stories framed the way I like them framed. Uh, and if I can help with that, I'm happy to. Um, and also, you know, I've got some skills here. The molecular biology training turned out to be really useful for this. I know how to read science papers. So if reporters send me papers that have just come out and say, can you comment on this? I can do that very quickly. And I'm almost never misquoted, which is another thing that makes it easy to talk to reporters because I don't worry about being misquoted because it happens so rarely. Was the food pyramid your first big sort of issue to tackle? I sort of thought it had to do with food advertising to children. When did that come in? No, that came later. The pyramid was 1991, 1992. Mm -hmm. I had just come to NYU. And this was really before I had made the decision that I really needed to do something about the issue of marketing. There was another epiphany for that. And that story happened in 1990. Three, I think. I went to a National Cancer Institute meeting in Washington, and there were a lot of anti-smoking advocates at that meeting. It was a meeting on behavioral causes of cancer, and they were looking at cigarettes and diet. The other diet speaker was Jane Brody from the New York Times, and that was kind of fun. I knew that cigarettes were bad for health, and I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I'd never paid any attention to it. And at this meeting, there were international anti-smoking physicians and scientists who gave presentation after presentation on how the cigarette industry markets. And there was one presentation on marketing to children that was just a real eye-opener. Uh, the guy showed slide after slide after slide of Joe Camel ads and advertisements in places where kids hang out and at rock concerts and you know celebrities and these kinds of things. I knew that it existed, but I never paid any attention to it. And I walked out of his talk and remember saying to Jane Brody, you know, Jane, we ought to be doing this for Coca-Cola. 
Um, and that was it. I started doing that for Coca-Cola. I just started paying attention and taking pictures of Coca-Cola ads everywhere I went, um, McDonald's ads everywhere I went. I was doing a lot of traveling, and you know, so I, I could collect international photographs of that. And that eventually led into articles about marketing to kids and soft drink pouring rights and th those kinds of things. So I started doing article after article after article. And finally, in the late 1990s, realized that a book would be a really good idea. And then I could take those articles and put them together into the book that eventually became Food Politics. You are just so prolific. So here you are, this mighty might sort of rolling through the world. So then you write the book. And then what happens? Well, everything opened up. I should say that my book, Nutrition in Clinical Practice, disappeared without a trace because the publisher had a midlife crisis and went to music school and gave up his publishing business, leaving my book totally abandoned. So I had no idea what it was like to have a book. And my book came out with an academic press. The expectation for academic presses is if you sell 500 copies, you've done really, really well. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. There was a book tour, a very difficult experience, and there were lots and lots and lots of radio interviews. I think I did 100 radio interviews for food politics. I thought that was normal. I had no idea. Um, and so I got a huge amount of publicity, and things started happening almost immediately. First of all, it was attacked immediately and attacked viciously on Amazon. There were the first set of reviews on Amazon all gave it one star um, and were really nasty interviews. And then somebody came in and said, oh, these were all, you know, somebody organized these. These all came out on the same day. They were obviously all written by the same person. Somebody organized this. And so there was controversy over it right away. And that sold books. And, you know, it was never a New York Times bestseller, but for an academic book, it did very well. And again, I thought that was normal. My subsequent books didn't do that well, most of them. And then I got speaking uh, invitations. And I was a little overwhelmed by the speaking invitations. I ended up doing 50 talks in the year the book came out. And the next year, I did 85 and the next year after that, and then I completely fell apart. I was traveling constantly. I was chairing the department. That stopped, fortunately. So I was busy. Eric Schlosser, who had written Fast Food Nation the year before, um, I called him and said, how do you handle it? You know, what do you do? And he said, listen, this is your chance. It's not going to last forever. You really should just do all you can because this is your chance to get your ideas across. So I did that. <laughs> just about killed me. And then lots of things happened after that. I mean, and oh, and then because the manuscript that I turned in for food politics was way too long, it ended up as two books. University of California Press um, published Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety the year after. And then there was another book two years later. And, you know, the books have continued and every book generates new audiences and new speaking invitations, although that stopped with the pandemic. But your idea started to change the way the world was. 
wasn't just that the books did well and that you spoke. You started to have incredible impact and things started to change. Well, I can't measure that. I don't know how to measure that. As I said, my books were never bestsellers. They never got on the New York Times bestseller list or even close to it. They got to a a niche audience that had both positive investment and negative investment in what you were saying. I have no way of measuring the impact. I mean, really no way of doing that. I wish I did, but I, but I don't. And so I have to leave the impact assessment to other people. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do it. What I can say is that I've been consistently busy with speaking invitations, writing, producing books. When I stopped chairing the department, now called the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies, when I stopped that, I had time to do a lot of writing. And I'm working on my 13th book since uh, Food Politics came out. So I did a memoir this year. It'll come out in the fall. I can't wait to. What's the title of the memoir? It's called Slow Cooked. <laughs> it took me a it. long time to get to all this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's University of California Press is doing it. I think it's their first food war, their first memoir in the food and culture series. I think that's great. But when you look at all of the things that have been accomplished and you look at the things that are going to get accomplished next, other than the fact that you wish you could shake everybody upside the head and have them (laughs) improve their diets and get more exercise, what do you think the most critical things are that policy can address? Oh, it has to address inequality. That would solve a lot of nutritional problems. I mean, that's really the big one. To the extent that people have money, they eat better. Duh. (laughs) You know, that's all you can say. It seems so obvious because it's hard to evaluate impact. I don't know what's me and what's the zeitgeist. Everybody is talking about inequality now. And I always thought I was just stating the obvious. When I wrote Food Politics, which is about how the food industry influences what people eat, I thought I was stating the obvious. The food industry is not a social service agency. It's not a public health agency. It's business with stockholders to please, and they behave like any other business. They need to sell product. That's how they stay in business. A lot of problems result from that because junk food happens to sell really well, and it's extraordinarily profitable. So that creates a public health dilemma right off the bat. I think there's increasing recognition of that. I'd like to take some credit for it, but lots and lots of other people have picked up on it and are working on it too. At the time that I wrote Food Politics, uh, it seemed revolutionary, which surprised me, but it did. It was greeted as if it was, I mean, people were astounded. What does food have to do with politics? That was the first question I got asked. What on earth does food have to do with politics? You know, well, now everybody, I think lots of people understand that food has plenty to do with politics. Did I have something to do with it? I hope so. Oh, no, I think you had a lot to do with it. I recall more than 10 years ago when um, I asked you to come to the Museum of Science and we put mm-hmm. together a teach-in on the farm bill. You know, like a pretty esoteric concept. We had like over 2,000 people who wanted to come. And it was the first time most of us, including me, really understood that the agriculture department was also a business. When you kind of took um, the audience through that, I think there were gasps of what people did not understand. 
about what was happening. Just, just fascinating. So I, I mean, you don't have to give yourself a lot of credit for it, but I can. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, but I mean, this goes back to my two years in Washington when I learned things I didn't even know I didn't know. And I think most people don't understand how government works. How could they when it's opaque and deliberately secretive and complicated? And the food part of government is particularly complicated because so many agencies are involved in it and they're not coordinated. And they sometimes work at cross purposes. That's complicated. And the farm bill, as I'm fond of saying, is impossible to understand. There isn't anybody that I know who really understands it because it's too big and too complicated. And it covers hundreds of programs, each with its own laws, rules, constituents, lobbyists. It's really hard. And you keep thinking, oh, It would be so nice if these things were simplified. And it makes a big difference who holds those political positions in Washington. It makes a really big difference. The Department of Agriculture right now happens to have a terrific group of professionals in the part of the Department of Agriculture that deals with food assistance programs. I mean, lucky us. There's, they're really good people in those offices, and they are trying as hard as they can to deal with the inequality issue as best they can in the amount of time that they have available. One of the things I want to ask you about and thank you for is your series and your blog presenting all of the studies about food findings, chemical findings, nutritional findings that are financed by industry. Ah, yes. My, I love my that. Week, my weekly food industry-funded study of the week. Yeah, I have a daily blog at foodpolitics.com, and because I'm so upset about conflicts of interest in nutrition research, I think it's really bad for science, really bad for the nutrition profession, um, really bad for all kinds of things. Uh, I just can't think of any justification for doing a study that's funded by the food industry unless the food industry is paying you to do it. And then it's marketing research because this isn't about science. This is about marketing. I have no trouble finding a study a week to put up there, each more hilarious than the next. I mean, some of them are really funny and people send them to me now. I get letters, you know, email messages from people all the time, Marion, here's a good one for you. And I'm really happy to have those um, because I really want it to stop. And I don't know how else to do it. I wrote a book called The Unsavory Truth, How the Food Industry Skews the Science of What We Eat. As far as I can tell, it's another book that disappeared without a trace. (laughs) Firmly ignored by everybody in the nutrition (laughs) department. Absolute silence. It wasn't reviewed anywhere. Nobody talks about it. Nobody refers to it. It's pretty astonishing to me. And why was that? Because they're, so much of their own research and their own sort of support dollars come from those studies? Why did they Well, I don't it? know. It got no publicity at all. Absolutely none. And that surprised me because stories about conflicts of interest in drug research uh, or chemical research get lots and lots and lots of press attention. And I did for food what Naomi Oreskes has done for chemicals and climate change and those kinds of things. Okay, it was a copycat book, but still, 
it surprised me that it got no attention whatsoever. So this is my way of trying to remind people that it's an ongoing issue. I think it makes uh, people in the nutrition profession extremely uncomfortable because there's not that much money in nutrition research, and this is a way to get it. And what I've seen is the classic response that we see in people who take money from drug companies and chemical companies and you know all of these, and oil companies, is that they deny that the funding has any influence on the outcome of the research, and yet you can predict that the outcome is going to be favorable to the sponsor's interest. It's very rare when it's not. I mean, why would they continue to fund a study that had adverse results for their product? Right. There's also a whole research enterprise on why this happens. And uh, those studies show that the influence shows up in the way the research question is framed. There's a big difference between asking for research that will demonstrate the benefits of a food or food product than asking an open-ended question, what is the effect of this product on health? There's an enormous difference in that. And I get letters all the time from trade associations looking for research to demonstrate the benefits of their food product, their, their fruit, their vegetable, their ingredient, whatever. Amazing. And that's the kind, and they're only going to fund, they're only going to fund um, proposals for research that will demonstrate benefit. You know, you get what you pay for. So it's an issue that concerns me a lot. I'm not seeing any movement on it. I, I'm not seeing lots of uh, much interest in it, um, which is disappointing. I can't remember what the story is this week, but I read it. Um, the industry-funded study of the week. Study but, of the week. Yeah, mm. but when you publish it, do you hear from them? Who do you? No, no. Um, I get almost no pushback at all. I used to allow comments on my blog, and the um, and they got really nasty. I mean, there were trolls, and um, they were. I got comments on my age, my religion, my uh, political views, my whatever. They were really rough. There was a set of comments that tried to organize a campaign to get me fired. It got so awful, and readers were complaining that they didn't want to read these. And so I turned it off. So I don't get comments on the block. The only time I hear from readers is if I make a mistake. If I get something wrong, if I misspell a word, if I have a broken link, I hear about those. But that's about it. I'm treated quite respectfully by food companies. I'm invited. I have frequent invitations to consult with them, and I have a policy for how I do that when I do that. And I'm treated quite respectfully. It's kind of weird. Oh, no, it's not weird at all. <laughs> it's not weird it's at all. It's it's mm. it has been earned over all these years and mm. and proven itself every week. I blog at foodpolitics.com five times a week, Monday through Friday. Um, and I've been doing this for nearly 14 years. I can't believe it. We promised you that we wouldn't take up too much of your time from writing your memoir, and this has just been <laughs> great. And I just can't tell you how how proud I am to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. And ours. Thank you so much, Marion Nessel. We'll be looking for the memoir. When do you think it will come out? October. We'll be ready. 
We'll be ready. Thank you, Marion. You are my hero. And listeners, be sure to follow Marion's daily blog, foodpolitics.com. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 